0: This is the west side king's church podcast where we aim to encounter and embody the surprising
1: grace of jesus hey um i you know i'm i'm excited for this conversation David, because we've had um a lot of conversations throughout our sunday teaching um and through this podcast and short circle and conversations that we're having here mm-hmm. um around a lot of ideas of resurrection and just some misthinking uh Mm -hmm. and some misunderstandings i would say when it comes to you know life after death and you know to borrow some phrases from tom Wright, you know life Mm -hmm. after life after death um and um you know last week talking a bit about hell uh some of the misconceptions there biblically you know the evidence for it or the the shadowy uh, you know as the, that was the language we used evidence of it as far as its exact kind of you know how it unfolds um, yes yeah it's kind of nature and makeup <laughs> yeah yeah that's a great way to explain it. and uh you know tonight now um a conversation around another area that's quite fascinating and one that i've grown up with really you know I was gonna say near and dear to my heart, but it's not that near and dear to my heart. Um, It's more of just (laughs) the part, near but not dear. (laughs) Yes, uh, you know, but a part of my upbringing. This idea and this thinking around rapture. Mm. um, This idea that at some point in time Jesus is going to come back. He's going to, you know, whisk away the righteous in some senses um, Mm. and leave everyone and everything else behind as it kind of crumbles, um, you know, Mm. behind us do you have where has this come from like where has this thinking started to develop um Mm. i know you've said you know you're not a rapture specialist because of probably a bit of your stance on it (laughs) but but, it would be a fascinating job title though wouldn't it yes (laughs) yes i'm a rapture specialist but um but where where has this started to develop i guess i would say that's probably a good place for us to maybe start the conversation
0: yeah I, i mean i think i think you can see lines of thinking as to how you you get somewhere like that. Um, And I I have some of my own sort of theories on this uh, in terms of church history and development of ideas and and the development of theological ideas within the church. Uh, Now, where I would hope that if somebody's been tracking with our with our Sunday series, there's at some level we're doing a bit of rewinding work so you know there's a lot of this series where we've been saying hey listen our popular ideas around heaven hell the end of the world you know all this sort of stuff eschatology is the subject title isn't it a lot of this stuff isn't rooted as firmly in the bible as we may have thought right um you know i was even just reflecting with some friends today thinking i grew up in church and i knew all of this stuff this was just stuff you knew but i don't recall it being taught very often It was just stuff that we knew. And I wonder if that's part of the problem. There's a lot of stuff that we know (laughs) and that we've picked it up somewhere and we're not really sure where we've picked it up, but now we know it. And then somebody irritating like me comes along and says, Hey, listen, let's just look at what the Bible says about that. And we realize stuff that we were pretty firm on doesn't have overly firm biblical foundation. And in some cases might even not be what the Bible seems to be getting at. Right. So if you've been tracking with the series, there's a kind of logic that will, and and I almost apologize at some level because the series does this. Once you pull, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Jenga, once you pull one block out, there's a lot of stuff now needs some work done on it or it starts to become unstable. Um, So you start working backwards and saying, well, wait a minute, if God's bringing resurrection, if resurrection is the end goal, and then, and then leaning into even some of the stuff that you you were talking about in your teaching session on this, and if resurrection is the end goal, and maybe that's resurrection that God is bringing something, he is making all creation new, then, then uh, the alert listener goes, oh, wait a minute, so, so this place isn't going to the, to the dogs sort of thing, this place isn't all going to be burned up by fire. Right um, now, there's a text in uh, in in one of the Catholic epistles in the New Testament, so called, you know, uh, sort of as as they're known, where where one of the King James editions had this verse about the the you know everything being burned up by fire, right? Um, but interestingly, of course. There's a long history as to how that verse ended up there, but it's not in the earliest or original texts. So there are times where Christian tradition has has almost had these ideas floating around that you know. So you pick up your your Bible nowadays and you leaf through John's Gospel, you leaf through Peter, you leaf through you know these. You're looking for this text and you can't find it because it's just not there. It was a it was a weird, quirky King James insertion that had very little evidence to defend it. So so all these. All these houses start crumbling for want of a better term right so we're all going away somewhere else forever we're getting rid of this body we're moving on to something completely different uh all of that starts to lose its biblical basis when we do a bit of an exploration and instead in its place we end up with something bigger more exciting more hopeful and and what i'd want to keep doing more victorious right so instead of sidestepping yes death, Or colluding with death this is something that is ultimately the destruction of death and in a in a jewish eschatology in a biblical eschatology if death is destroyed sin is also destroyed so it's a it's a much better uh you know paul paul will ask in in first corinthians in the end death where is your victory right uh you know that's not where we live now but paul says that's that's where we're going to end up right and if we've all escaped to somewhere else while this all burns to fire the, the victory of death is obvious. Right? It's, it's right there in the destruction of God's creation. So right. that's a very brief recap of some sense of the journey. The, the observant listener will then go, wait a minute, what happens with something like rapture in that sort of context? Because of course, rapture fits right into this escapist eschatology, this idea that we're all getting out of here and rapture becomes the mechanism by which the people who are still alive when Jesus returns will be taken off to, you know, heaven, the good place, the the somewhere else. And it becomes this mechanism for sort of, you know, the people who are dead go up, and then those of us who are still alive go up. And that kind of becomes this language. And, And so you see this develop within... Really in the last hundred years, I would say this idea really strongly take root, particularly in North America, right? Um, So this is an important, you know, when somebody teaches about rapture, it's just worth noting that this is almost exclusively North American. Uh, idea uh, in terms of where it's really captured. Uh, you'll find it in pockets around certain groups in the in the United Kingdom, but predominantly church groups that find their roots in North America, if, if that if that makes sense. But if you, if you head right. around the rest of the world, it's not a particularly big doctrine. Right? It's not really there. Um, and so it becomes an almost evangelical doctrine at some sort of level. Now, it it's it takes its roots very briefly. Let me just say this: it takes its roots from a guy called Jan Darby. Uh, uh, he was uh, a preacher. Uh, he became pretty convinced by certain eschatological takes that were going on, and and he basically hit North America. He was, he was British, so let's just bring the British back into the blame here for a second. Uh, he 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 basically headed into. Uh, into North America. He he was very influential in a guy called Schofield. Um, And I I made reference to this in one of the teachings in this series and Darby and Schofield kind of really have influenced a lot of this thinking about this idea that God will come in and take all the Christians away so that the earth can essentially be be destroyed, right? Um, The idea my suspicion, Tyson, is the idea takes root predominantly in the late 1800s, early 1900s, I think because the world was a bit of a mess back then. and, and, and with the world being a bit of a mess, and particularly then you, you have to kind of go through a couple of world wars uh, and various other sort of pretty, you know tragic situations, I'm you know, I'm no I'm no modern church historian, right? So you know, I'm, I'm a scholar of, of of early Bible. So once it gets beyond about 90 AD, you know, I get, a, I get, I get a little, a, a little weak, perhaps. But when I, when I read about this history, I just can't help escaping the sense that it was a failure of faith. That actually, when you live through some of stuff, the stuff that the peak rise of industrial revolution, the development of, you know, into some world wars, I think people lose hope that God can actually restore this, that this this is too much to ask so I think you see you know the 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 ground laid for it's just easier to believe in escapism it's just how would that even be possible to fix this mess Um, I mean that's just a notional theory that I bump into but the fascinating thing is if you pick up books like you know if you were to find yourself in the hands of um You know an an old book i remember somebody handed me an old book of sermons once from the middle of the 1800s by a by a scottish preacher um and it was fascinating to me as i leafed through all the sermons about the return of jesus just no mention of rapture at any point so 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 when you so here be what i say if so let me say this directly to you then so you grew up with this idea of rapture right And, and so what you've now come to realize is that this is a a specifically new doctrine right so so yeah. you know it, it, it's recent in terms of church history's 2000 years it's coming in in the last few in the last few years relatively and it really has taken hold predominantly in north america not elsewhere so it's new and very localized as as, as a sort of belief culture basically you know evangelicals in the uk and some in europe and north americans and then places that those groups of people went and were missionaries Right. So, so you get the idea sort of spreading around in those sort of contexts. Then you get a couple of texts. Um, Hal Lindsay's the late great planet Earth, a really famous text, depending on your age, one that will probably remind you of you'll you have encountered that. Um, and then more recently, uh, a, a 12 book series that you still have
1: your autographed copies of or. <laughs> no, I, you know, I don't even know where mine exists. But yeah, 12, I think it was 12 books of Left was. Behind. Yeah, the Left Behind series,
0: which then, of course, became uh, you know a movie with Nicolas Cage. Um as if it was possible to make those books worse uh, and put Nicolas Cage in a, in a movie uh, with them. And um, and then if you're a little tiny bit older, like my age um, or a bit older than me, there was a couple of movies came out in the 70s uh, that, that I saw. They were old when I saw them. I just want to try and uh, defend my age a little bit. Uh, a movie called A Thief in the Night and then its sequel, A Distant Thunder. And I don't know if some of our, uh, our people will have will have heard of them, but all focused around this idea of rapture. And all of them trauma inducing, right? Like, uh, because they essentially created this. Like the, the, the narrative behind A Thief in the Night was unless you're a really serious Christian, when the rapture comes, you won't get you won't go with Jesus. Right? Um, I have had conversations with pastors that in, in my life as a young person where when well, this was the sort of thing we used to talk about at youth group sometimes. If Jesus comes back, will you go with him? Right. And uh, And and none of it brought us any level of security and none of us, you know, Like I nowadays think, man, why did none of us remember, you know, Romans eight, where nothing separates us from God's love? But instead, we lived in this kind of subtle paranoia, I would say. And and I've talked to a lot of people over, over my life, Tyson, about this. And and it's I've lost count of the amount of people that say, children particularly that are now adults, that would wake up in the night and if the house was quiet, they were nervous. Because, like, did the rapture happen? And my mom and dad are gone, and I'm still here. Because, because if you grew up within a lot of Western evangelical culture, you know, even as a kid, you had a lot of guilt, right? And uh, you know, yeah. and, and, you, and yep. you were sort of driven into this sense. So, so you, what I think you get is that rapture becomes almost a pinnacle doctrine formed from. I think a lot of the anxiety around how we did that particular type of theology, and a rootedness in in an idea of escapism rather than resurrection. That took right. me a long while to say that, Tyson. But I mean, is that how does that you experienced it as much as I experienced it? Does that resonate?
1: Yeah. Well, and I experienced it in like informative years, like mm-hmm. as an adolescent. You know, where your brain's really. I mean, you're trying to figure <laughs> out the Jesus thing in general, let yes. alone this idea of rapture and it, could you be left behind and how terrible would it be to, you know, to be left behind. And then again, the 12 part book series that gets slapped in your bedroom and, you mm. know, hey, hey, read this to kind of, you know, think about it and make sure you're good with Jesus. So, yeah, um, I mean, I would say a, a fear based um or a fear driven salvation is not god's intent ever um yeah. and, and so anything that's driven by fear i think is problematic 100%. gospel gospel wise when you look at it i just don't think um i just don't think it fits i don't think you can find any basis mm-hmm. of you know ground to stand on just mm. to, to suggest that fear is the way that Jesus wants you to make your decisions when it comes to Him. I'm saying, and so the thing for me is
0: Tyson. I I was I was a second year uh, theology student before I I ditched my my ideas of, of this, um, which I want to talk about how I came to ditching them, uh, sure. perhaps you know in in a minute or two, but you know I, I think that's the first time that i really remember thinking oh my goodness am i moving into heresy now right because because i i'm afraid to go home and tell my, the friends at my church that i come from that i i don't believe this anymore right this right. is not this is not something that i uh that i track with um and and so i think for me this there's two types of people that I encounter a lot within what I would call the kind of evangelical world, right? So we're maybe not evangelical, but we're like, I don't think of, of our church as evangelical as so much as it's kind of adjacent to the evangelical world. Um, sure. And the so, so we kind of, I find two things really, I find either people just ignore it and, and, and just try not to think about it. And the danger of that is In the process of not thinking about rapture you end up not thinking about resurrection and the return of jesus you know yes or you do think about all the time and there's a lot of anxiety and fear around it Um, right you know what happens to everybody else and how does that work and if you've watched any of the movies from left behind through to you know uh, a thief in the night or if you've read any of the books they will likely have increased your anxiety right so, unless it's not obvious, <laughs> what I want to say, let's just yeah, throw it out there easily. I, yeah. what I want to say is that rapture is not a biblical doctrine, right? So let's just yes. let's just rip the bandaid off really quick. Sure. And, yeah, we'll,
1: uh, well, this 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 week we will disclose where we stand on a lot of things very <laughs> yeah, quickly. Yeah. So, um, so I,
0: I, it is a doctrine that people have developed from the Bible, but it is not a biblical doctrine. And what I mean by that is that the the only way to come up with the notion of rapture is to is to read two texts in particular um badly essentially uh, yes yep. and and to to in one of the texts to completely misunderstand what's being said and in the other text to get yourself in a bit of a tangle uh, so my suggestion really was for this evening is to actually jump into those texts and have a little bit of a look at them uh, if that works sure. for you so if you've got a Bible, uh, you're going to want to jump uh, across into Matthew to begin with, in Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to just sort of look at verse 36. Um, so Jesus is talking at this point about a few things which are going to happen in the future, it seems. And the this passage of matthew is is very reminiscent in terms of style of what you see in revelation right? right um so therefore if you were classifying it as a piece of biblical genre you would classify it as apocalyptic right and now when we hear the word apocalyptic we tend to think oh that's to do with the end of time right whereas actually apocalyptic quite literally the word apocalypse means to reveal right so so to you know a revelation is something about something that was previously hidden something which was hidden has now been revealed um now interestingly if you actually look closely at what jesus is talking about in this passage a lot of christians throughout the years have read it as stuff that's going to happen in our future Uh, but actually the early christians definitely seem to read this as it was about the destruction of the temple and one of the reasons we know that is because when the romans came in and started to destroy the temple the christians enacted a lot of this sort of stuff and in doing so sort of Sort of save their lives um so so to begin with there's probably a little bit of cautiousness needed when we read this because it is an apocalyptic text that, that this chapter is that seems to kind of lead towards something to do with the destruction of the temple side note really important side note here for you tyson um, the genre of apocalyptic literature in judaism is generally always tracking with one particular theme which is Things are going to happen in the future. Some of those things are going to be insanely scary. God will not abandon His people, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the reason that they write apocalyptic literature and the reason that you would read apocalyptic literature is to be encouraged that you're that in the end it's going to be okay because God's in right. control. Which for right. me is important because, like, in the culture that I grew up in the one thing you never felt after reading revelation was any comfort or any sense of security. So you actually ended up with the exact opposite feel of what the purpose of this sort of text Well,
1: it's what, it's what they always said. Don't read revelation before bed because it was, you know, 100% because you'll not sleep. <laughs> so so yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so much fear.
0: Absolutely. When in revelation, actually, if you read it in a slightly more mature way, you realize oh my goodness, this text is full of, God's got it, don't stress too much, just keep following him and stay loyal, you know, to to what you know to be true. Right. (laughs) So, um, okay, so, um, so then, Jesus as he's talking through this, and he's and he's alluding to some pieces of Daniel at one point, and this is all related to the destruction of the temple. Uh, you see this uh, this sort of piece um, in in Matthew chapter twenty four and, and verse fifteen. He says, "When you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place," uh, and a lot of people have like you know that that sort of language became huge in the whole rapture movement about when will you see this? Uh, the King James called it the abomination of desolations, right? And um, uh, now, of course a lot of biblical scholars will tell you that in, in 70 AD, when the Romans marched into, uh, you know, Jerusalem, they, they, they desecrated the holy place, right? So, so this is, and they did it earlier in the Maccabean story as well. So when Jesus uses this phrase, I think all of his listeners know exactly what he's talking about. And it's us hundreds of thousands, well, hundreds or thousands or so years later who have, have come in and said, Oh, I wonder if this is something to do with the, the future. And, um, like the culture that I grew up in, it was basically always either a president that we didn't like or communism, right? That was yes. that was basically uh, always the sort of focus of this. So then Jesus says he works his way around. He's dealing with some with some language that we could spend a whole day talking about, but let's get to the bit that that we want to talk about today. So he gets to verse sure. thirty six, and Jesus says this. But about the day and the hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the son, only the Father. Now, so you're gonna have to listen. Closely here because Jesus gives you all the data you need, and we and and all of the rapture teachings miss it, right? For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, so quick flashback: what do we mean when we say the days of Noah? Okay, so so Noah is um is a character in Genesis, early, early in the Genesis narrative. Evil has taken over very quickly in God's good creation, and so what does God do when evil takes over? He essentially purges creation, right? Yeah. And how he does that is he essentially floods the earth uh, in the creation story, in this part of the creation story. He floods the earth, and that, in its process, that removes all of the unrighteous from the from the earth, and then he reestablishes humanity through Noah and his family, and they survive by being on the ark and so the stuff of many children's stories uh is is born right yes um, but apparently we didn't listen well enough in in sunday school when we were told these stories because when we get into grown-up apocalyptic sunday school and we read this we all forget so as in the days yeah. of noah so will be in the days of the coming of the son of man And jesus then explains it just to be really helpful to us as in those days before the flood they were eating drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day noah entered the ark and they knew nothing until the flood came and took them all away so too will be the coming of the son of man okay so pay attention to the text in matthew 24 there who got taken away yes so who got taken away is it's the unrighteous people, right? Yes. It's the people. It's not Noah. It's, it's, it's everybody else, right? They, they were just carrying on as normal and they got taken away. Right. So righteous is right. Unrighteous is removed. Righteous is left behind. Jesus says so. That's going to be the same as when the Son of Man returns. Right. Then two will be in the field. OK, so so two will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Forget everything you knew about rapture theology who gets taken right now that i grew up right so i grew up with the dc talk song if you're older than me you grew up with the larry norman song i wish we'd all been ready have you heard that song is that one that i haven't heard i haven't okay, heard so, that so, one so I'm i wonder if anybody DC talk though yeah i wonder if anybody would hear, So, so larry norman in the 70s i think it was wrote a song called uh, it, the line begins life was filled with guns and war and this good is i i'm not even prepped for this tyson so i'm hoping i can remember the lyrics uh, <laughs> life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled on the floor um uh, and I wish we'd all been ready. And then it says, a, a man, and wife asleep in bed. He turns his head, hears a noise and turns her head, he, his head, she's gone. Right. And he starts and he sings his way through essentially this sequence of, of, of rapture beliefs. Right. right. Um, and then in the, in the late nineties, DC talk decided to start doing it as part of their tour and kind of, it got reestablished around a bit left behind thing and all that, it, you know, this song kind of makes it back again into the sort of popular Christian world, um, very niche market. But, um, so and this verse is it's all based alone. So, so Matthew 24, uh, 42 will be in a field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken, and one will be left, right? Um, and and so, so that's been a hugely influential piece on rapture theology. Okay. Yes. And so basically, the idea in the song is: you know, the, the man and wife are, are in bed. Uh, you know, the, the woman is taken to heaven and the man's left behind. And then the whole left behind books are built around that premise. The, yeah. um, what do you call it? The uh, Thief in the Night film is, is built around that that premise as well. The problem is, <laughs> when Jesus is talking about this in Matthew 24, the person who is taken away is the unrighteous right okay because right. of the premise that he set up via Mo- via Noah right yes <laughs> that, that how did it work in the flood god eradicates the unrighteous and leaves yes. righteousness behind yep. why why does god do this well because god's it's his creation exactly as we saw in the, in the Noah story it's his creation
1: and he wants it to be good again. Yeah, it comes back to it comes back to the the resurrection narrative, mm-hmm. which, I mean, which in and of itself, as we start to, you know, kind of unpack this in Matthew 24. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe I'm jumping a bit ahead here, though, but it, the the idea of resurrection and new creation that that Jesus is, is put is leaning into with this story that has you're right has been twisted, becomes problematic in the sense of how we've talked about it even with sundays this disembodied soul that dis mm. that goes somewhere but with rapture you get this physical disappearance and how do you actually right like do bodies yeah. drop? Do, do bodies drop and souls disappear <laughs> but people are disappearing so yes. there's a physical reality like it all when you really stop to consider some of this when you come at it from a, a theology, which we've been trying to do of resurrection, mm. it really has no ground to stand on period for even just some pretty basic, mm. well, maybe you know, maybe we call it basic, maybe that's unfair to say, but because we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about it, but, but what feels like some basic thinking just about
0: so if the, resurrection
1: the, is bodily and physical, mm how do you get this picture of rapture yeah, i, I think
0: and... the problem often happens for all of us is that i think we've, we've talked about this before where we compartmentalize our thinking and, yeah, and, yep. and and so we think about this, and then we think about that, and, and we don't think about how the two things go together. So I think one of the challenges on a, on a basic physiology about the idea of rapture and the return of Jesus is exactly as you say, is why do we need the resurrection of the dead if we're all then going to heaven for, a, um, you know, for an eternal uh, life, which is purely spiritual. Uh, why does Jesus's body even need to be raised from the dead in, in, in that sort of situation? Um, so, th- so there's definitely there's definitely some some problematic logic going on in there, Tyson. Um, and so, f- for me, what we're what we're seeing, I think in Matthew 24 is very consistent now with what we've seen throughout the whole of Scripture, right? That God is attempting to rescue His creation, right? So, so like. Um, you know i i talk about this on sunday but you know if you look isaiah 65 like Isaiah 65 is like the, almost the controlling narrative of, of resurrection for the New Testament writers. Uh, I mean, well, in truth, Isaiah 60 through Isaiah 66, sometimes known as third Isaiah. It seems to be a very contained piece of, uh, of, of, of Isaiah. Um, and so, so you can, Isaiah seems to break itself up into about three sections, the so sort of one to 39, 40 to, to 59, and then 60 to 66. And in, in 60 to 66, you get this real sense of, of the future of God's plan. And in 65, you get i mean just go and read isaiah 65 at some point and you'll see oh my goodness like there's so much of revelation of paul's doctrines of res- of resurrection of justice and of the putting together of all things but it's all earthy it's all physical right it's all here right. like the lion is lying down with the lamb and i don't think that's a metaphor it is a metaphor but i also think it's true if that makes sense it's like yeah it's an image of peace that will be a true image of peace. it seems to be what Isaiah is trying to, to wrestle with here. So to all of a sudden then get Jesus turn up and say, hey, by the way, God's taking the righteous out of here and just leaving this whole behind because it's a mess would be for Jesus to to significantly reverse isaianic prophecy. Okay, right, that would be strange. Given that when Jesus gets his chance to preach his first sermon, where does he go to base his text? Third Isaiah, right? Or right. Isaiah, I can't get my head to say it right consistently. Uh, it's okay, we, we still are. <laughs> I just keep flipping, but I'm bilingual and uh, around, <laughs> around the name Isaiah. Um, so Jesus goes to Isaiah 61. You know, the the spirit of the Lord has come to announce freedom, delivery from prison, freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, all earthy, by the way, stuff you can feel. Right. Uh, And and so so it's fascinating to me that Jesus actually jumps right back into that. Paul in First Corinthians 15, when he says, know that your labor is not in vain, that line is taken right out of Isaiah 65. Right. No longer will anybody labor in vain. Right. So so all of these pictures are going together. But sometimes what happens is, again, it's something that I, uh, I I talk about a lot. But when you take a couple of verses out of their surrounding context, and in this yeah. case, the development of a rapture theology, you need to not only take them out of the context of Matthew, you need to take them out of the context of all of the Bible. And, and you can then make them seem to mean something else. And then when the kind of popular uh, opinion seems to grasp that, you know, from J.N. Darby and the Schofield Reference Bible. You've maybe, if you've ever been by somebody's house that's that's done theology for a long time, you often see a copy of that uh, on a shelf somewhere. Uh, Hal Lindsey's book, Left Behind Books, you know, right. uh, Thief in the Night. You now start to get momentum that it just sounds believable. And and let me be honest, and I don't want this to sound pretentious, you know, not many of us have time to really sit down with Third Isaiah and, and kind of get to grips with his vision of new creation, right? Right. So when, when when you watch, when you 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 go into a Christian bookstore uh, or you're watching Christian television or a supposed Christian book series and they push this idea. Most of us are prone to go self-included. I spent well, I've only just crossed the halfway point in my life, so I have literally spent fifty percent of my life believing in rapture and fifty percent not believing in it, right? right? And it cost me a lot of thousands of dollars in degrees to get to the type of people <laughs> that point out to me, "Hey, that's not actually what it says in in the Bible right. there." And now I look at it and go, "Yeah, it really doesn't
1: say it." Okay, so. Right. So that would be like, that's the first text. Do you want to say but, anything more about Matthew? Yeah, but I'm, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. And I think it makes sense of how something like that gains traction because, uh, you know, and we touched on it last week in our conversation around this idea of this hell kind of present around us, um, Mm -hmm. in our current reality. So this thought process of someone saying, Hey, listen, the Bible really wants to tell you that you're going to escape from all of this and the hurt and the pain, and you're going to get taken away. And now there's some fear aspects to it. Are you going to be left behind? Aren't you going to be left behind? But this idea that you could almost escape certain things, I think Mm -hmm. is probably would be my hunch. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not a historian. Um, as to how some of that starts to gain traction too because Mm. it's attractive in some senses i think the natural instinct for a lot of us is to say well let's avoid let's avoid some hurt and pain if we Mm. do that to float off to this place that's way better well then yeah i'm in right like and i wonder if that's where you see a lot of the traction pick up as you said with some of the world wars and
0: Yes, I think so, and 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 we're all, you know, we all like our theology to be attractive to us. That's a pretty common uh, thing yeah. for us, you know. We 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 do unconsciously. I think we we want theology that makes sense to us, and yeah. that's why theological change is so hard. Because you know, I use my example. You know, half my life I believed in rapture, and half my life I I haven't believed in rapture. Transition is hard because you have to admit, good as I was, you know, like I have to live with the fact that I spent uh you know at, at least a good chunk of my teens worrying about something that the whole time i had a bible that told me that's actually not how it's going to work right. um, but i can't get those years of anxiety back <laughs> you know they're right. uh, they're just there so and therefore sometimes we just become loyal to an idea because we don't want to entertain the possibility that maybe you know maybe just maybe it wasn't
1: uh well and, and and some of its some of its tradi- tradition has a lot of power a lot and a lot of weight in conversations and just in how Mm. it shapes things and we're often um, slow to question tradition because Mm. it's how it's always been done and so it's an easy assumption to say well this is just correct because obviously Mm. if we've been doing it for this long it has to be right otherwise yeah We wouldn't be doing it but that's that's not always the case tyson i have a doctorate and
0: there's still people that i haven't been brave enough to tell that i don't believe this anymore because they were (laughs) they were they were really influential to me in my younger years i'm thinking man they'd be so disappointed right Right. yeah fair (laughs) so um so now, just a quick a quick spot. Uh, if you're the type of person that underlines your Bible, um, you, you may want to, uh, you know, underline, underline your Bible. But uh, for us in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Um, and then in verse 39, so that's verse 37, verse 39, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. There's, there's a Greek word used here, which our translations don't help us with, but they do all translate it as coming. Uh, but the Greek word is parousia, um, or some people would pronounce it parousia, You may, depending if you you know you've encountered that that word, perhaps parousia, um, and it kind of does mean coming, but in a very specific way, and it's used very in a very technical way in the ancient sort of context, and you see it. Uh, I was. Uh, Tom Wright had a, has some language around it, which I think is really helpful, I think he's one of the masters at explaining this sort of stuff, um, where essentially he he explains it like this, that. Um, uh, parousia is usually translated coming, but literally it means presence, that is presence, as opposed to absence. Right, um, and and then he points out he said that the word parousia had two uh, meanings in non-Christian discourse at the time of Jesus, and both of these meanings seem to help us. The first meaning was that parousia was the mysterious presence of a god or divinity, particularly when the power of this god was revealed in healing. So it was a sense of a of a of a supernatural and powerful presence. And the second use of parousia, and listen to this, because this is this is quite quite interesting um the the, let me just read tom exactly he says the second meaning emerges when a person of high rank makes a visit to a subject state particularly when a king or an emperor visits a colony or a province the word for such visit is royal presence but in greek the word that they use is parousia Right. Um, so it, what Tom points out is this is technical language. It, it It's about the arrival of somebody. It, it's right. their appearance rather than their absence. He says, but he says it's worth noting none of it, none of the language is ever supernatural in the sense of, and it all happens in the sky or in the clouds or anything like that. It, it's the sort of, so, so let's talk about Philippi. You talked about being, you know, citizens of heaven. And yeah. you talked about how Paul, uh, is, is, you know, in Philippi and he's in, you know, he's writing to Philippi in this particular language. If the emperor decided to visit Philippi, you know, uh, and he turns up there, it would be considered a parousia, right? He would be, right. the emperor is now present here in, right. in Philippi. Now that's going to become quite important uh, when we get to our next text today. Uh, but I wanted to sort of mention it now because it's interesting to note that that's the language that Jesus uses uh when he's talking about this in matthew 24. Uh, now so does that make sense so so yes. kind of just, it's yep. just worth noting it's a language around the notion of coming uh but it's royal language at some level it's about the arrival of of the king
1: yeah and i think uh, you know just as a as a quick pause there i think the the language piece i would say is probably one of the biggest hurdles mm. period in english anyways um, as for mm. a lot of us to understand scripture um, yes. and to understand yes. it within its context and what's being said. Uh, yes. We don't have to go too far to go, you know, to, to find the limitations mm. of the English language and what is, you know, and how they're translating certain words from its, you know, yes. original language. I mean, you love is a perfect example, right? Like yeah. three different kinds of words for love. We have one. We love cheeseburgers <laughs> and, and we love our family and we use the same <laughs> word. But it's well, and for some people, it might be the same kind of love. Who knows? But, um, but right, like there's yes. there's limitations to that, and and so I think that's probably one of the biggest hurdles I think for a lot of people. Yes, um, is to and is to so figure out and wrestle through the language piece. Hundred percent, and so when, when just reading scripture in general.
0: Yes, so perusia. Let's just put it into context then. Yes. Uh, hey Tyson, I'm coming over to your house, okay? Um, maybe in a really casual way, that could be a perusia because I'm not presently at your house, and then I will be at your house. And uh, you know, if, um, let me use a slightly you know different example. Um, you know, you get a phone call from your mother-in-law, and, and and she says, "We're coming to stay for three weeks, right?" Nice. That's nice. That's a that's a perusia, right? Okay, so so that you know that they're they're arriving and they're going to be present. Right. Yeah. If I say to you, "Hey Tyson, uh, let's go to McDonald's for ice cream," I'm gonna spin by and pick you up. So I'll be coming by at three. Okay. Um, that's not a perusia because I'm right. just coming by. I'm not gonna be present. I'm just coming while you jump in and then we drive off. Right. Why is that important to make the point that? if the the language of parousia if what's being discussed here about the coming of the son of man in in matthew 24 is a flyby right that he's just spinning by to pick up the righteous and then clearing off back to heaven parousia is the wrong word to use because it's a coming which brings with it presence not just a sort of drive-by in that sort of sense right Um, and so so it's it's really interesting like if you said in philippi the you know the caesar the parousia of the Caesar is happening, and they just gallop past in their chariots while on their way to Ephesus. <laughs> no, right? That's weird. Nobody's going to say that was a parousia. <laughs> right, that was a sighting. Right, in that sort yeah. of- So, so even a subtlety of the language of parousia, which is used very rarely in the New Testament, right? Languages is like Paul uses it twice. Right. He uses it in First Corinthians fifteen, a chapter about resurrection, and he uses it in First Thessalonians chapter four right which is where I want to drop us over to now because this yes, is the this, second text this is a big one this is the text that also people like when it comes to the language of parousia um yes. and not of parousia of rapture right now i'm going to have to make an assumption here just because uh we, we got a lot of time but you might we don't have a lot of time but you you might want to drop over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at some point afterwards and read the language uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because when yeah. you do when you get into um I run about chapter uh, fifteen verses twenty three through twenty seven. Uh, you're going to bump into that parousia language again, and you're also going to get some other language about trumpets and things like that. That's very reminiscent of what you see here in First Thessalonians chapter four.
1: Okay, and this is where this is where a book like "Surprised by Hope" by Tom Wright is really helpful. Phenomenally helpful, alongside or... of these types of texts.
0: Hundred percent. Or the the right now media series that we have on that, yes. which you can you can just go to our if you don't have a right now media account, go to our website. You know, you can I think you scroll halfway down the homepage, you can click in, get your own account for free, and watch yep. his video series yeah. called Surprise by Hope in there. And it's worth doing, right? So yep. um yep. So right here here um here goes. Paul says this to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians probably the earliest letter written by Paul. So this is really early theology. Um, but we not do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those. Who have died? This is verse thirteen. So that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope, right? So here's the setup: some of the Christians have died. Okay. So what does that mean? What happens? Because we we've been hoping in resurrection, but maybe this didn't happen as quick as we thought it was going to. Jesus isn't back yet. So what happens? Because previously, you know, we kind of thought that Jesus was going to sort everything out, but now. Now we've got this two tier. Some people are dead, some people are alive. So Paul wants to sort that out. Verse 14 of chapter four of 1 Thessalonians. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the, and your English translation probably says, coming of the Lord, but the word there is parousia, okay? So that we who are alive are left until the, the royal return, okay, the royal presence of the Lord. If I say royal return, we start slipping into Lord of the Rings. So we'll just back <laughs> up a little bit from that. Um, until those who are left until the parousia of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And there's a little bit of you go to Paul. Paul would love to encourage people with those words. But don't make a lot of sense to me so yeah <laughs> I'm, go- I'm, I'm gonna not go sure. back to roman sure <laughs> how to interpret that <laughs> yeah i'm gonna go back to nothing can separate us from god's yes. love because that made a lot more sense to me right yeah. um now this is quite interesting because paul's doing a couple of really interesting things here and he's talking a, a, a little bit about transformation he's talking a little bit about the return of jesus and the change that that will bring Right. But here's something I want to say that always gets me in trouble. OK, so but I'm going to say it anyway, because I'm a slow learner. Paul is also leaning into some pretty symbolic and metaphorical language at this point. Right? And I think the language that he's borrowing or alluding to or symbolizing is language stolen from two or three places. Right? There's definitely a, an illusion here around about verse 16 and 17, where it all gets kind of like, "Whoa, that's a little intense here. I think there's allusions to Moses on the mountain, right? Um, when, when the trumpet sounds, a voice is heard, and Moses appears, and, 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 you know, from a period of absence, and he comes back down, and chaos is erupting in the camp. People are starting worshiping other gods and everything like that. Moses comes yeah. back and sorts it all out, right? It's very hard for me not to think that there's an allusion to that there. There's also an allusion, I think, to Daniel chapter 7, where where there's this sense that the persecuted people of god are are raised up to live with god to to, to raised up in glory in the clouds and it's again more metaphoric language about god vindicating enemies right but then also if you jump over to philippians chapter three and read some of the language that's going on over there you start to see real resonance with this notion of the royal presence In Philippians chapter 3, we are citizens of heaven. We're not trying to go there. We're expecting a savior from there. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, 20, I think Tyson. We expect a savior from there who is going to come. So, So this idea of royal, what we're, listen, I mean, let me explain it like this. If news comes to Philippi that the Caesar is coming, okay, what do you think the people do like do they all stay home till he gets there right you know that no what happens is the people rush out of the city to line the streets so the parade for the arrival of the king for the parousia of the king the parade happens you know miles down the road by the time the caesar arrives at the city gates the, the party's been on for quite some time right? Yeah. So what I think we've got being described here is essentially this image of a little bit of Moses metaphor, a little bit of Daniel 7 metaphor, and this royal presence metaphor, that the sound of the trumpet, oh, the Lord is coming, we hear, right? So what happens? Well, the dead in Christ are raised from the dead, and then we are caught up to meet him. It's a welcoming image. It's the return of the king. I'm back to Lord of the Rings. Yeah, there you go. It's it's the return of the king coming back. Well, why is he coming back? Because it's his creation, right? right? He's coming back because he's here to reign. right? So Wright says this in, in his book, which I think is really helpful. He says, we must remind ourselves yet once more that all Christian language about the future is a set of signposts pointing into a mist. Signposts don't normally provide you with advanced photographs of what you'll find at the end of the road but that doesn't mean they're not pointing in the right direction. They're telling you the truth, the particular sort of truth that can be told about the future. But the interesting thing, of course, for me, is that the, ty- the signposts tell you the truth in a way that you can make sense of right now. You know, it's a, it's, it's a red triangle with a steep hill on it, and it says steep, right? You don't need a picture of the hill. You just know, i got to slow down a little bit here because this is going to get hairy uh, in, in, in a few minutes' time, right? So now, <laughs> people always say to me when I say this, well, you can't just get out of a bib- an awkward piece of biblical text by saying it's a metaphor right? <laughs> or, or it's symbolic, right? right. But I'm going to say yes, I can, <laughs> and here's why. Right, is we're going to turn the page now uh, from the end of Thessalonians chapter four, verse eighteen. So I'm hanging it out, saying this is metaphorical language. Paul is not literally describing us going up into into the sky to 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 meet. Right. Right. The other thing, by the way, is. If this is a rapture, you know, it's almost like Jesus does a kind of drive by bus pickup here. They're just going to spin by, load everyone up and clear off again. So we're still struggling that even if this is what this text is saying, I'm saying it's not. But even if it is what this text is saying, we've still ended up in escapism, which all of the other bits of the New Testament we've looked at in this series have told us this isn't. The way it works yes. okay so there is a problem there but jump over to chapter five for a second okay now i just want to note something jump down to verse 11 notice what paul says in verse 11 therefore encourage one another with this notice how he ends chapter four therefore encourage one another so he's speaking to to this kind of inclusio of stuff this is stuff that's all related so so okay guys this is what paul's saying um you know, hey friends, uh, brothers and sisters in in, in Thessaloniki, um, let's just let's just uh, let's just cl- close this here. This is what's going to happen. Trumpet call, the return of the king, the parousia. You get you you know Paul's almost saying you get what I'm talking about. This this grand language about the royal return of the king. So now well, then there's the next question, kind of obvious follow on. When's this going to happen? Right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. We want to yeah. when, when? Paul give us give us a date? Okay. So Paul Paul obviously expects this 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 question. So now concerning very next verse. Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Um, for you yourself know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, interestingly, that's exactly the same language that Jesus uses in Matthew 24. So right. after he says that the one will be taken, one will be left behind, the very next metaphor that Jesus uses is a metaphor of a thief in the night. But yeah. notice here, you yourself know the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's a metaphor. Okay. So Jesus is not a thief. Okay. So, so, so at this point, everybody has to accept Yes, that must be a metaphor. It's a simile like a thief in the night. We learned that in English class. This is a simile, right? So so, so there's one. Let's just count them for a second. So within a verse, we're back into metaphors, right? Thief in the night. Then, then Paul says in verse three, when they say there is peace and security. By the way, most Bibles will put that in inverted commas for you if you see that. There is peace and security. That's because peace and security was the slogan of the Roman Empire. So, so Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, went around the empire proclaiming peace and security. Okay? Now, one Roman critic says, yeah, they went around saying it was peace and security. They just, they just found a desert and called it peace. Right? And, uh, and, like, and another critic pointed out that the way that they brought peace and security was by killing everybody that didn't agree with peace and security. right? right? So, but Paul seems to now allude to the Roman Empire. Little, you know, hey, there's all these people going around saying peace and security. And then sudden destruction will come upon them As labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Oh, wait a minute. As another metaphor. Okay. And there is no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness. Oh, there's a fourth metaphor now. Now we're talking about light and darkness. You are not in darkness. For that day to surprise you like a thief. Let's go back to the first metaphor. Um. For you are all children of light. Oh, now we've got a kind of, you know, slightly alluded to, we've got the light and darkness metaphor. Now children have appeared in it as well. That might be related to the pregnant woman and children of the day. And we are not of the night or the darkness. So let us not fall asleep. A sixth metaphor now. (laughs) Let us not fall asleep. because as others do but let us keep awake and be sober a seventh metaphor right and we've only just made it to verse six for those who sleep sleep at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night but since we belong to the day let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith let's just throw in an armor metaphor in here now so now we're at eight yeah Um, And we're alluding to uh, we're alluding to Ephesians now the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation for God has not destined us to wrath, but for the obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him, therefore, encourage one another. (laughs) Okay, so here's my pitch, right? If chapter five isn't metaphorical, I don't know how to make sense of that, <laughs> because because you end up with and, and and there's an old joke about Paul, which is why use one metaphor when nine will do. Right. And, and so, yeah, you know, like you end up with. That you have a pregnant woman in the day avoiding the thief wearing armor who is sober and awake, right? Like it's yeah. the most complex image ever if you're trying to say Paul's being literal. Of course,
1: Paul's not being literal
0: here. But of this, is, but
1: this is what Paul does.
0: 100%. 100%. It's what it, we all do.
1: Well, and yeah, but Paul does it a ton. If we're going to pick on Paul, when it comes to big. Those are fighting large (laughs) Tyson. I I know. I'm sorry. I'm not actually picking on Paul. Um, But when when it comes to large theological kind of topics that Paul essentially is saying, listen, we're not 100% certain exactly what it's going to look like. You and I have talked about this in so many different spaces. The cross, right? Like new creation. Some of this stuff. Paul is is pulling, which again, like mm-hmm. you said, we all do, to try to explain something that is, you know, sometimes hard to fully imagine and wrap our heads around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit, it's like this. It's essentially is what Paul is kind of pulling in again, mm-hmm. is to say, it. it's like all of these things are going on at, and it's a little bit like this as we're trying yes. to navigate right, when Jesus returns. 100%.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. I mean, this is why I love Wright's comment about signposts. The truth is, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5 makes sense. Right? You don't read it and go, I have no idea what Paul's going on about here. You only read it saying, I have no idea what Paul's going on about here, if you try and make all of those metaphors literal. right? Yes. Uh, and then yes. you go, this is, I just can't imagine this. But if you understand it, he's going, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. You know these things. You've seen these things. You understand these things. You've seen a pregnant lady. She's approaching labor. You know there's only one way out of this right yep. uh you know they, like you've you've been there three times with, with your with your wife many of our listeners have been in that themselves there's an impendingness of i just know what's going to happen here right yep. um you know we know what it's like that you know people do get drunk and 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 you would kind of never say that a drunk person was particularly alert so that's a great example of why how not to be that paul says right yep. uh, a thief in the night it springs up you know if you expect a thief in the night then they don't they're not a good thief and you stop yep. them from breaking in right uh, so so this so but what i I'm saying is that it always sounds controversial to suggest that Paul might be metaphorical in in chapter four at the end, but in the very next paragraph, he's compounding metaphors to explain something unexplainable to us. So at which point now, I think you can roll back into chapter four and feel a little more comfortable that Paul is alluding to things. And what I think he's alluding to now is completely consistent with what we find throughout the rest of scripture, that Christ will return. Yeah. And when he returns, we will be excited by that because it means the world is going to be put right again. The, the, the king is coming and he will be present to us. So now, the, even just reading the word parousia like presence, now you can tie it into Matthew's Christmas story. Emmanuel, God with us. You can tie it into Revelation chapter 21. The, pre, the dwelling place of God is now with mankind. Right? You've, you've got... Like, it's all there and it's all happening, yeah, you know, at the same time. Uh, so First Thessalonians now fits into it. Right? Uh, Matthew's thief in the night and Matthew's, you know, people being taken away also actually now fits into that because, because it becomes a bigger image of God bringing righteousness back. And for righteousness to come, unrighteousness must be taken away. Is that, does that make sense?
1: yes yes i you know it's it's pretty clear to me what you're you're suggesting there and i would say you know our 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 time is well Go we're on. over time we're over time as always um but, so, but I, here let me say this then just as a point yeah the key thing is that that what i want to do with this and
0: at some level what i want to do with this whole series is pull the pin on the anxiety around this okay? yes absolutely it is, it is not the intention of any of the biblical writers to leave us nervous about this yeah if if your doctrine of god leaves you not sure about where god stands relating to you then uh, then i would say get a better doctrine of god right <laughs> because nothing separates us from the love of christ there's there's you know th- let's go back to romans 8 but it's, a, it's yeah. a decisive text on this yeah so what does this mean You know, so people can say to me, you know, well, you know, what are you saying, David? If if, is there no heaven? No, I've not said that at any point during this series. I've said that heaven is just not the end of everything. That God has something bigger beyond that for us what does that mean for the people that i love who have died you know this new theology that you're presenting here or i would argue this old theology that i'm presenting here you know what does that mean for the people who have died it means that they are with god and that nothing separates us not even death paul says separates us from the love of god that's in christ jesus paul says if i die i'm with christ and that's better so so the New Testament is is resolute in in the fact that one thing and by the way, many of the early Christians were, were martyred. How were they able to go to a martyr's death? Because they had found themselves convinced by what they they had been taught that that Jesus was with them regardless of what happened. Uh, And that, for me, is what a resurrection theology does. It expands our view not only of God's love and and compassion towards us, but it adds onto it God's relentless refusal to lose. (laughs) So the king will return. And he will put the world right. That's what Isaiah said, you know, and that's what Paul and Revelation and Jesus all pick up on and, and and say the same thing. The king is coming, and when he comes,
1: he's here to stay. It's it's profound,
0: actually, at that that level.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I and I think that's, you know, I mean, there's still so many other topics that you can still um unpack and have conversation around and you know problematic thinking that we can you know that we could start poking into but i think i think that's a great place for us to land you know this topic at least for now we may pick it up at at different points along the way Mm -hmm. but um you know just to say resurrection has changed and Mm -hmm. should change how we think about things because it changes how we view what god's doing and where we're going and he's coming if that makes sense Mm -hmm. to say god's intention as you've said is to come back to restore all things. As he says, I'm making all things new, not new. I'm not, I, you said it, I think in a sermon, I'm not Mm. making new things. (laughs) I'm making, you know, all things new, which is a completely different kind of thought process, which I think, you know, for us is important to remember and Mm. how that launches us and pushes us back into how do we interact with the world around us? How do we view our own relationship with Jesus Mm. in light of that as well to know as you said nothing separates us god's redeeming things he's putting it back there's n- there's no task too small in the kingdom yeah. because your labor is not in vain and it matters with eternal implications because of what god is doing in creation here and now